The following episode of Lyrics of Their Life deals with sensitive issues and includes extreme adult themes. It is not recommended for children and listener discretion is strongly advised. If you at any time require support, please contact your local crisis centre. Hello and welcome back to Lyrics of Their Life for the final instalment of the Kurt Cobain story, part 4. To get the best possible experience, I highly recommend tuning into parts 1, 2 and 3 of the story first, as the story flows on from there. As a quick recap, in part 1, we covered Kurt's childhood and teen years, all the way to Nirvana's first taste of success, with their debut album Bleach. In part 2, Nirvana reached insane heights through the success of their album Nevermind. Kurt married fellow musician Courtney Love, and the two had a baby together named Francis Bean. However, Kurt's relationship with Courtney Love, the media, and heroin would cause him to spiral. In part 3, we discussed the In Utero album, the dark messages hidden in the song, and music video for Heart Shaped Box, and the MTV Unplugged performance. Now, we turn our focus to the final months of Kurt Cobain's life, the conspiracies surrounding his death, and the legacy he left behind. So once again, let's jump straight back into the story. I'm your host Adam Hampton, and this is Lyrics of Their Life. Kurt was now struggling to make it through a show, feeling drained and fatigued, and felt he needed drugs to pull him through. Kurt became so bad at times that he would be high on stage and would require Pat Smear to fill in the gaps on guitar, as Kurt would continuously skip or miss chords. By December 1993, Kurt revealed during an interview with MTV that his debilitating stomach ailment, lasting for almost six years or more, had finally settled down after being prescribed the correct medication. But despite this, Kurt didn't cease his heroin use that he once said he got into due to the stomach ailment. On January 8th, 1994, Nirvana would unknowingly play their final show in the US in their home base of Seattle at Mercer Arena. On the 28th of January 1994, Nirvana booked in for a short three-day recording session at Robert Lang Studios in Seattle, Washington, with producer Adam Casper. With Kurt's heroin addiction at an all-time low, he was a no-show for the first two days of recording, so Dave and Chris decided to work on some tracks that David wrote that would later be used in future projects, including the songs Big Me, February Stars, Butterflies and Exhausted. Grohl had previously shown his potential as a songwriter and vocalist in the B-side to Heart Shaped Box with his own track Marigold that would become a rarity and a fan favourite. On the third day of recording on the 30th of January, Kurt finally showed up and laid down a track of his own he had been working on called Kurt's Tune 1 that would later be renamed You Know You're Right. The lyrics are quite confronting and sarcastic as Kurt appears to be singing about his frustrating and conflicting relationship with Courtney, and he suggests potentially running away from her and their marriage and starting afresh, as he sings, I will never bother you, I will never promise to, I will never follow you, 
I will never bother you. Never say a word again. I will crawl away for good. I will move away from here. You won't be afraid of fear. No thought was put into this. I always knew it would come to this. Things have never been so swell, and I have never failed to fail. Before Kurt breaks into the chorus repeating the word, pain. He continues with the lines, It's so warm and calm inside. I no longer have to hide. There's talk about someone else. Sterling silver begins to melt. Nothing really bothers her. She just wants to love herself. These lyrics strongly suggest Kurt has had enough of his relationship and mentions possible infidelity relating to Courtney being in the wrong and he is ready to remove his ring, suggesting a divorce. Hence the line, Sterling silver begins to melt. There are many alarm bells that ring out in this song, with Kurt at the time being linked to whole bass guitarist Christian Pfaff and Courtney flirting with the idea of cheating with ex-Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins. You Know You're Right would be the final recording Kurt Cobain ever did. They planned to return for more sessions after their European leg, but Kurt's death once again prevented this. The song wouldn't be released for many years and was stored in Novoselic's basement, only rearing its head after Dave and Chris convinced Courtney to release it. In February of 1994, Nirvana continued onto a European leg, playing across France, Portugal, Spain, Slovenia and Switzerland. But 13 days into the tour, Kurt's voice began to strain. He relied on throat spray to get him through the gigs for a period of time before arriving in Italy for a run of shows where his voice started to give way. When they arrived in Munich, Germany on the 1st of March to perform, they had performed around 70 shows and cancelled just the one so far. Little did Kurt and Nirvana know that Munich would be their final ever performance as a band and Kurt's last live gig of his life. It turned out to be one to forget as well, with Kurt losing his voice halfway through. It was during this show that Kurt had strained his voice so significantly and was advised by a specialist the following day that he would need at least two to four weeks to recover. He was prescribed with an antibacterial throat spray and diagnosed with a terrible case of laryngitis and bronchitis. Nirvana had no choice but to cancel their next set of shows in Germany and reschedule for mid-April, making it through just 15 of their scheduled 35-show tour of Europe. Although Kurt despised touring, he was disappointed that his voice had let him down and his fans. The following day on March the 2nd, 1994, Kurt checked into the five-star Western Excelsior Hotel in Rome, Italy to take a break after touring for four weeks straight and decided he should rest taking the doctor's advice, deciding against taking the long flight back to the US as he was far too ill. Courtney was also set to arrive that same day from London after Kurt had reportedly called her from Spain upset and depressed just two weeks earlier. Those close to Kurt believe that he was upset and feeling betrayed over Courtney being potentially unfaithful in London in late February, where she had travelled to watch her ex-boyfriend, Billy Corgan, perform with his band The Smashing Pumpkins. While Kurt was often the type to overthink situations, with his family saying he always had stuff running through his head, without a doubt, Kurt had his reasons to be suspicious, as Courtney later revealed that she sure thought about cheating on him, especially when she felt he didn't trust her. Others close to him believe he had even mentioned divorcing Courtney around this time, but there is a lack of solid evidence to support this claim. When Courtney arrived, they sat in their hotel room, ordered room service together, and shared a bottle of champagne before going to sleep. The following morning on the 3rd of March, 
Courtney awoke at around 6.30am to find Kurt unconscious next to the bed. He was pale with blood dripping from one of his nostrils. Kurt was believed to have swallowed around 50 to 60 Rohypnol tablets, washing them down with bottles of champagne. The drug usually used to treat insomnia, anxiety and occasionally alcohol abuse had shut down Kurt's body and he was rushed to Umberto Polyclinic Hospital in Rome after Courtney notified the front desk. At the hospital, Kurt received five hours of emergency procedures, including having his stomach pumped and emptied as he laid in a coma, lasting for up to 20 hours. When he was moved to the private Rome American Hospital, Kurt would awake from the near-death experience just a few hours later, immediately communicating by opening his eyes, moving his fingers and responding to his name. Later on, he improved to the point of communicating through a notepad writing down get these fucking tubes out of my nose and with his vital signs improving Kurt would soon be out of hospital and headed back to Seattle. Courtney made a frustrated statement at the time about her partner's attempted suicide saying he's not going to get away from me that easily I'll follow him through hell. Many to this day still question whether it was a legitimate suicide attempt or an accidental overdose with Courtney believing it was a suicide attempt as she stated he had taken 50 to 60 pills and guzzled and guzzled and guzzled down so many pills. She also claimed he had left a three-page suicide note that included the quote, Dr. Baker says I would have to choose between life and death. I'm choosing death. Dr. Baker would later claim Kurt didn't take anywhere near the amount of pills and he was quoted as saying, We can usually tell a suicide attempt. This didn't look like one to me. Dr. Galader, who treated Kurt in the hospital, also believed he hadn't swallowed anywhere near 60 pills and that it was in fact accidental. The drugs were said to have been prescribed by Dr. Baker to fight off Kurt's illness or flu and throat problem, but Courtney had also been seen popping them the night before his overdose. Many questioned the decision of Dr. Baker prescribing such a strong drug that was usually used for insomnia where he could have just gave him antibiotics. News of Kurt's drug-induced coma spread quickly in the media, with some radio stations in the US even reporting that Kurt had died, sending fans into a frenzy. His management company Gold Mountain Records released a statement that it was an accidental overdose and that he was recovering well with no permanent organ damage. Many conspiracy theorists claim to this day that Courtney was responsible for the drug-induced coma, believing she placed the pills into his champagne but there is a lack of solid and clear evidence to suggest this. Luckily, Kurt was still here, at least for the moment. His brush with death, however, wouldn't be enough to stop him from continuing his reckless behaviour and nagging heroin addiction. What was interesting about Kurt's coma was that he hinted and predicted this would all happen in his cryptic music video for Heart Shaped Box just six months earlier. The rest of the European tour was cancelled as Kurt returned home to Seattle to be with his family after five days in hospital. Kurt was said to be embarrassed by the overdose being leaked to the media as his friend Dylan Carlson recalls. Around this time, Kurt was said to be in the early stages of splitting up Nirvana and working on a project with Michael Stipe of REM. But things quickly spiralled out of control once more when on the 18th of March, police were called to Kurt and Courtney's Seattle home once again over a domestic dispute where Kurt had allegedly locked himself in the bathroom with a 38 caliber revolver with reports from Courtney that he was saying he was going to kill himself. Kurt's revolver, along with three other firearms that he had previously reacquired from the police, 
were again seized, along with a bottle of unidentified pills. Kurt would tell police later that night that he didn't actually intend on killing himself, and that he was actually hiding from Courtney. With Kurt seemingly fragile and on the verge of ending his life through excessive heroin use and pressure from Courtney, Courtney attempted to organise an intervention to get Kurt help by bringing together all the people who cared and loved him the most. Courtney and those looking to help spoke with Stephen Chadoff at a behavioural and psychotherapy rehab centre called Anacapa by the Sea in order to find Kurt the help he needed. Chadoff said, They called me to see what could be done. He was using up in Seattle. He was in full denial. It was very chaotic and they were in fear for his life. It was a crisis. Chadoff began interviewing family, friends and band members, but Kurt soon caught wind of this and the plan had to be called off as he wasn't having any of it. Courtney then arranged for Faith No More keyboard player Roddy Bottom to come watch over Kurt and make sure he didn't do anything stupid. Days later, Chris Novoselic took Kurt for a drive and remembers, quote, He was really quiet. He was just estranged from all of his relationships. He wasn't connecting with anybody. They then proceeded to buy dinner, only to make an unintentional pit stop at Kurt's heroin dealer, who they spotted along the way, as Chris is quoted as saying, His dealer was right there. He wanted to get fucked up into oblivion. He wanted to die. That's what he wanted to do. With drugs being kept out of the house for his safety, Kurt would go to extreme measures to get his fix, sourcing it through dangerous individuals. He was taken to many more doctors, therapists and specialists to help fight his addiction, but it was no use, as he didn't want to fight it and felt there was nothing wrong with his habits. It is said that Christ had also asked him personally to stop taking heroin and offered to help him, but Kurt didn't want to take his advice and kept using anyway. Dave Grohl also became estranged from Kurt towards the end, stating that things got weird and communication was limited. Dave also stated that their relationship was stilted by Kurt's heroin use, saying, I haven't done drugs since I was a kid. 20 years old I was when I think I stopped. There were drugs around and there was like the people who did drugs and the people who didn't do the drugs. And I didn't do the drugs, so I was out of that world. If you're in it, you're in it. If you're not, you're out. On the 25th of March, 1994, around 10 friends, bandmates and colleagues gathered for an intervention to convince Kurt to attend rehab. Attendees included Courtney, close friend, musician and fellow heroin addict Dylan Carlson, manager John Silver, Danny Goldberg, Jeanette Billig of Gold Mountain Records, and bandmates Chris Novoselic and Pat Smear. Courtney proposed that they both head to an LA rehab facility together, where he could get help for his issues, and Courtney could get help for her own ongoing addiction to tranquilizers at the same time. When Kurt was grilled about his drug habits and the need to seek help through rehab, he lost his cool and became argumentative, paranoid, and frustrated that they had organised it behind his back when it wasn't something that he wanted to do. Chris and Pat told Kurt that they themselves would break up the band if he didn't get his act together. Kurt got up and left the room to find he wasn't going anywhere and headed downstairs to play his guitar, blocking everyone else out. Pat Smear followed Kurt to play some music with him and calm him down, while the others discussed what to do next. Kurt's journal entries at this time included the phrase, Kill yourself, written repeatedly along with other dark messages and drawings suggesting where his mindset was at at this time. The drugs and depression had taken over so much that he was hardly making art or music anymore, the two things he loved. 
His relationship with Courtney had deteriorated to the point of daily arguments, while to be fair, he wasn't fit to be around Francis, despite his obvious love for his daughter. He knew this, and that would have totally destroyed him. With Kurt still being defiant, Courtney decided in her words to use the tough love approach and decided that she would just go to rehab in LA without him and would have Francis come with her and their nanny, Michael Kelly, do it. On the 26th of March, 1994, Courtney checked into the Peninsula Hotel in Beverly Hills where she would stay while undergoing an outpatient detox program for rehab. While she was here, she continuously phoned Kurt, attempting to persuade him to check himself into rehab. Without Courtney and Francis around, on the 30th of March 1994, Kurt ventured to his friend Dylan Carlson's house and asked Dylan if he could purchase a shotgun for him and put it in his own name as Kurt had previously had his guns confiscated and therefore he wasn't sure if he was allowed to own another at this time. In order to convince Dylan, Kurt told him it was to keep burglars and trespassers away as there had been a recent break-in attempt at the house. Carlson, without reading too much into it, agreed, saying, He seemed normal. We'd been talking. Plus, I'd loaned him guns before. That very same day, they both made the drive down to their local gun shop, called Stans, in Seattle, and Dylan, with Kurt present, purchased a 6-pound, 20-gauge Remington shotgun and a box of ammunition for around 300 US dollars. Kurt handed Dylan the money in cash and mentioned that he was headed for LA. Dylan offered to mine the gun for him, as he wasn't sure what Kurt's plans were, but Kurt refused and took the weapon back to his home in Seattle. It's believed during this time, Kurt thought about what his next move was, and placed the shotgun somewhere hidden. Kurt then decided to give in, and go to rehab that very same day. He took a flight to LA where he was met at the airport, and driven by Pat Smear and a Gold Mountain employee to Exodus Recovery Center at the Daniel Freeman Marina Hospital, in Marina del Rey, California. The rehab clinic itself was a confined part of the hospital that had about 20 beds crammed into the same facility. Kurt spent his day talking about his drug abuse and mental health problems with counsellors, and later in the day he also had a surprise visit from Francis Bean, which cheered him up as he was seen happily playing with his daughter, who was now around 19 months old. Once Francis left for the day, it would be the last time Kurt would ever see his daughter. On April 1st, 1994, after just two days at the rehab and recovery centre, despite visitors claiming Kurt had seemed in high spirits, Courtney believes Kurt called her and said, Courtney, no matter what happens, I want you to know that you made a really good record. In relation to Hole's Live Through This album, scheduled for release in 11 days, and she alleged that he also said, Just remember, no matter what, I love you. At 7.25pm that evening, Kurt was granted permission to have a cigarette outside and ventured out onto the facility patio amongst the palm tree filled exercise and leisure yard. After a couple of puffs on his cigarette, Kurt shot off like a flash before anyone could notice and jumped the six foot wall escaping the facility and landing onto the streets below of Marina del Rey. Kurt quickly called out for a taxi and headed straight for the LA airport on the first flight back to Seattle. While on the flight to Seattle, Kurt found himself seated next to none other than Duff McKagan, bass player of Guns N' Roses and one of Nirvana's enemies in their famous 1992 MTV award feud. Kurt this time around though was glad to have run into Duff, who knew all too well about the trappings of the industry and drug addiction. 
The two got talking about addiction and recovery and shared a short but peaceful conversation. Duff felt that Kurt seemed happy to see him but was quoted as saying, I knew from all of my instincts that something was wrong. Duff later expressed that he thought about inviting Kurt to his house which was just down the street from Kurt's but never got around to asking him as swarms of fans saw them and split them up upon their arrival at Seattle airport. The two parted ways, with Duff being one of the last people to see Kurt alive, as Kurt would become a missing person. It's believed that Kurt was seen around parts of Seattle on the 2nd and 3rd of April, and perhaps even spent a night on the couch of his holiday home in Carnation with an unidentified friend. Those that did see him claimed that he was wandering around aimlessly and confused. Neighbours believe they then saw an ill-looking man wearing a large black jacket that resembled Kurt sitting on a park bench in Veretta Park that practically backed onto his main home in Lake Washington Boulevard. It's likely that this was in fact a legitimate sighting and that he made his way into his house on the 3rd of April. To paint the picture of Kurt's home, it was a large grey-coloured brick home with white window frames and was a three-storey house that overlooked the Cascade Mountainscape and Lake Washington. It was surrounded by trees, hedges, gardens, and greenery, and included a separate green room building connected to the main house via the veranda. The green room was a small brick building with a triangular roof and a veranda of its own with a garage down below, and it was located in the backyard of the property, backing onto the park. When the rehab facility had realised Kurt was missing, they notified Courtney. Courtney had all of Kurt's credit cards cancelled and on the 3rd of April, she hired a private investigator named Tom Grant to search for him in order to keep the media out of the equation. After April 3rd, no more sightings regarding Cobain were reported. As Kurt's friends also joined search parties for Kurt, Kurt's mother Wendy filed a missing persons report on the 4th of April with police, with police now also on the hunt for Kurt as they looked at nearby junkie hotspots where heroin dealers would lurk at Capitol Hill, Seattle, but to no avail. In the report, Wendy feared Kurt was suicidal and had watched his decline in mental health and drug abuse unfold. She feared the worst for her son, as others began to feel the same also. But something fishy was up about this report, which will be touched on later. On the 6th of April, Courtney's private investigator Tom Grant finally got his assistance on the ground in Seattle to help in the search on the dark rainy night. Courtney believed that Kurt may have been with Michael Stipe as he was a good friend of his or that he was hanging around with his female drug dealer or whole bass player Christian Pfaff who Kurt had grown fond of. At this time, rumours again circulated in the media of Nirvana splitting up with further shows planned for the Lollapalooza festival called off on the 7th of April. That same morning, Courtney Love and whole guitarist and ex, Eric Erlinson, were found overdosed in Courtney's LA Peninsula Hotel apartment and were rushed to Century City Hospital at 9.30am. Just two and a half hours later, she was released and arrested immediately for possession of a controlled substance, possession of drug paraphernalia, possession of a hypodermic syringe, and possession receiving stolen property. Courtney's lawyer managed to get her off the charges claiming she hadn't actually overdosed and had an allergic reaction to Xanax tranquilizers, which she had been trying to detox from. This raised the question of why Eric and Courtney were sharing a room and taking drugs, while Francis and their nanny Michael Kelly Dewitt were in a separate room next door. When Courtney was released at a bail of $10,000, 
Oddly enough, at 3pm, she checked herself into the exact same rehab clinic as Kurt at Exodus Recovery Center in California. Kurt's Lake Washington home was searched by Courtney's investigator, but there was no sign of Kurt anywhere. But one spot they forgot to check was in the greenhouse. During the morning, on the 8th of April, 1994, a local electrician for Vecker Electric named Gary T. Smith attended Kurt and Courtney's home in the neighbourhood of Denny Blaine at 171 Lake Washington Boulevard at 8.40am. Gary was there to install a security alarm and lighting system that was scheduled due to Kurt's apparent concerns over robberies in the area. When Gary approached the greenhouse that sat above the garage, he stood on the deck looking in through the window panes of the French door and noticed Kurt lying on the floor. At first, Gary thought he was asleep, only to notice blood had been running out of his ear and a shotgun was laying on his chest with the barrel upside down, pointing towards his chin, gripping it in the left hand. Realising that the door was locked, he quickly called his co-worker Bruce Williams to ask him what he should do before calling 911 to notify emergency services. When emergency services arrived at the scene, they were forced to break in, smashing the glass pane and unlocking the door as the door on the other side was said to be blocked by a stool with items placed on it. It was quickly determined that Kurt Cobain was dead at just the age of 27. A coroner report finding that Kurt died on or around the 5th of April 1994, three days before he was found. The cause of death was determined to be a suicide just 24 hours after finding him. They determined that Kurt had injected himself with a large quantity of heroin into both of his arms, and while in a seated position, he proceeded to somehow awkwardly wrap his hand around the weapon and pull the trigger with his thumb, while the shotgun was upside down, shooting himself after placing the gun on the roof of his mouth using the 6-pound 20-gauge shotgun he had purchased through Dylan Carlson just days earlier. Traces of diazepam were also found in his body that would have been taken orally and usually has a calming effect. Located at the scene was Kurt's wallet and driver's license conveniently placed displaying who the individual was. Due to the extent of the blast, Kurt was formally identified by fingerprints. Also at the scene, set out like a shrine, was Kurt's secret heroin kit made out of a cigar box with everything placed neatly back into the box, a pair of sunglasses, three cigarette butts, a bag of shotgun shells, two white towels, a pack of Kurt's favourite American spirit cigarettes, and located in a bed of soil was a suicide note stabbed into the soil with a red pen holding it in place. The note was written to or dedicated to Kurt's imaginary childhood friend Boda, and included in the note was a quote from Neil Young's song My My Hey Hey, Out of the Blue, that read, It's better to burn out than to fade away. Kurt also made reference to his admiration and envy for the likes of Freddie Mercury. Kurt makes many references to feeling too much and loving others too much, while also questioning why he couldn't just enjoy the ride. He says some loving words about Courtney and Francis, but fears Francis will turn out like him. He then goes on to mention how everything changed from around the age of seven around the time of his parents' divorce, and that he just started hating people in general after that. He leaves a message for his fans and references his chronic stomach condition, where he is quoted as saying, Thank you all from the pit of my burning, nauseous stomach for your letters and concern during the past years. The full note said to be left by Kurt reads, To Boda, 
speaking from the tongue of an experienced simpleton who obviously would rather be an emasculated, infantile complainee, this note should be pretty easy to understand. All the warnings from the Punk Rock 101 courses over the years, since my first introduction to the, shall we say, ethics involved with independence and the embarrassment of your community, has proven to be very true. I haven't felt the excitement of listening to as well as creating music, along with reading and writing for too many years now. I feel guilty beyond words about these things. For example, when we're backstage and the lights go out and the manic roar of the crowds begin, it doesn't affect me the way in which it did for Freddie Mercury, who seemed to love, relish in the love and adoration from the crowd, which is something I totally admire and envy. The fact is, I can't fool you, any one of you. It simply isn't fair to you or me. The worst crime I can think of would be to rip people off by faking it and pretending as if I'm having 100% fun. Sometimes I feel as if I should have a punch-in time clock before I walk out on stage. I've tried everything within my power to appreciate it, and I do, God believe me I do, but it's not enough. I appreciate the fact that I and we have affected and entertained a lot of people. I must be one of those narcissists who only appreciate things when they're gone. I'm too sensitive. I need to be slightly numb in order to regain the enthusiasms I once had as a child. On our last three tours, I've had a much better appreciation for all the people I've known personally and as fans of our music, but I still can't get over the frustration, the guilt and empathy I have for everyone. There's good in all of us and I think I simply love people too much. So much that it makes me feel too fucking sad. The sad little sensitive unappreciative Pisces Jesus man, why don't you just enjoy it? I don't know. I have a goddess of a wife who sweats ambition and empathy and a daughter who reminds me too much of what I used to be. Full of love and joy, kissing every person she meets because everyone is good and will do her no harm. And that terrifies me to the point to where I can barely function. I can't stand the thought of Francis becoming the miserable, self-destructive, deaf rocker that I've become. I have it good, very good, and I'm grateful. But since the age of seven, I've become hateful towards all humans in general. Only because it seems so easy for people to get along that have empathy. Only because I love and feel sorry for people too much, I guess. Thank you all from the pit of my burning, nauseous stomach for your letters and concern during the past years. I'm too much of an erratic, moody baby. I don't have the passion anymore. And so remember, it's better to burn out than to fade away. Peace, love, empathy. Kurt Cobain. Francis and Courtney, I'll be at your altar. Please keep going, Courtney, for Francis. For her life, which will be so much happier without me. I love you. I love you. In the aftermath of Kurt's sad and tragic death, confused, devastated and shocked fans and pesky media outlets began to flock to the scene to see what was happening after reports had quickly leaked onto local Seattle radio station KXRXFM after Gary Smith's co-worker Bruce Williams had irresponsibly rang the radio station immediately to give DJ Marty Reema the so-called scoop of the century declaring Kurt Cobain as dead by suicide before investigators had even arrived to make the call. Within a matter of seconds upon the announcement, more radio stations in the area were onto the story, and after the radio announcer at KXRXFM got onto further press and media outlets, it spread further and further like wildfire, until basically the whole world knew. The lead singer of Nirvana, one of the world's most popular rock bands, has been found dead at his home in Seattle. 
Police said Kurt Cobain had apparently shot himself and a suicide note was found nearby. His body was discovered in an apartment above a garage at the house. Cobain wrote most of the music and lyrics for Nirvana's top-selling albums. Hundreds of fans are expected to hold a vigil at the Seattle home of rock star Kurt Cobain, who died yesterday. The lead singer with the group Nirvana had apparently committed suicide. It's a story rock music knows well. A young talent, a troubled life, and a violent end. One of the pioneers behind the sound known as grunge is gone. Kurt Cobain, lead singer of the group Nirvana, was found dead in his Seattle home. Kurt's sister Kimberly was the first of his family to hear the devastating news through the radio, followed by his mother Wendy. Some radio DJs in the area took to the airwaves, labelling him as a coward for leaving behind his daughter. Some were shocked as they thought they knew him better, while others claimed they could see it coming a mile away. As judgement filled the air, MTV attempted to cash in by airing reruns of MTV Unplugged, featuring Nirvana and their music videos. Courtney was quickly notified and checked herself out of rehab that day to mourn. One person that was shocked by this news was Kurt's good friend, Matt Lanigan, of The Screaming Trees, who never found him to be suicidal. The two had collaborated back in 1989 and had been quite close. That very same night of Kurt's death, Pearl Jam were performing at a gig in Washington DC when lead singer Eddie Vedder paid tribute to Kurt saying, I don't think any of us would be in this room tonight if it weren't for Kurt Cobain. The news shook Pearl Jam up so much, they cancelled further touring just two weeks later. The toll it took on Nirvana fans would be tragic, as suicide hotlines rang off the hook, with devastated teenagers expressing their sorrow for the loss of an icon, who meant so much to them. The Seattle Crisis Clinic alone received a hundred more calls than usual the day of his death, but the effects wouldn't be noticeable until after a vigil held in Kurt's memory. Dave Grohl found out through a news program on TV and was devastated and said, quote, Probably the worst thing that has happened to me in my life. I remember the day after that I woke up and I was heartbroken that he was gone. I just felt like, so I get to wake up today and have another day, and he doesn't. Dave went on to say, Sometimes you just can't save someone from themselves. In some ways, you kind of prepare yourself emotionally for that to be a reality. Dave Reed, who took Kurt in to live with his born-again Christian family, said, he had the desperation, not the courage, to be himself. Once you do that, you can't go wrong, because you can't make any mistakes when people love you for being yourself. But for Kurt, it didn't matter that other people loved him. He simply didn't love himself enough. When the news hit, Dave, Pat Smear, and everyone else close to the band gathered to mourn at Chris Novoselic's house in shock. On the 10th of April 1994, a public vigil for Kurt was held at Seattle Centre Park with between 5,000 to 7,000 fans in attendance. Joining them to pay their respects was former Nirvana drummer Chad Channing and Kurt's ex-girlfriend Tracy Miranda, who blended in amongst the morning fans. A pre-recorded voice message of Courtney Love reading Kurt's suicide note was played as an emotional and bitter Courtney also said, Why didn't you just fucking stay? He's such an asshole. I want you all to say asshole really loud, which the crowd responded yelling asshole. This was followed by a touching recording from good friend and bass player Chris Novoselic, who spoke to the fans saying, Catch a groove and let it flow out of your heart. That's where the music will always be. Courtney arrived at the end of the vigil and was then seen handing Kurt's clothes out as mementos to grieving fans. 
Other vigils were set up by fans around the city, including one at Veneta Park, near Kurt's house, where fans still flock to the park bench to this day, usually on the anniversary of his death, leaving messages, flowers and art. Chad Channing remembers being quite emotional and said he could sense something like this was coming in relation to Kurt's death. While Tracy and Miranda stated she was just really upset and emotional. Making matters worse just after the vigil was a number of teenage suicides that followed and were said to have attempted to copy what Kurt had done while listening to Nirvana tracks. The suicides stretched from Seattle across the US to as far as Turkey and Australia. Days after the vigil, Kurt's family and close friends had a private service of their own with 150 invited guests at Seattle Unity Church with an empty casket ceremony as Kurt was to be cremated. In attendance were Tracy Miranda, Chad Channing, Chris Novoselic, Dave Grohl and many other close friends, musicians and family. Chris got up and spoke saying, Remember Kurt for what he was, caring, generous and sweet. Courtney read some of Kurt's favourite poems and his suicide note once again while Kurt's friend Dylan Carlson read a passage from a Buddhist poet. Kurt's favourite band growing up, the Beatles, were played with their song, In My Life, beautifully ringing out at the funeral. Kurt was cremated, and Courtney had his ashes divided into a teddy bear and an urn. Another portion of his ashes were taken to be blessed by Buddhist monks at a monastery located in New York, where his ashes were mixed with clay and turned into memorial sculptures. After Kurt's death, Chris and Dave both were severely depressed and recluse for a period of time before Nirvana won Best Alternative Music Video and Best Art Direction in a Video in September 1994 for Heart Shaped Box at the MTV Music Video Awards with Chris accepting the award and paying tribute to his good friend Kurt Cobain in one of his only public appearances that year. Chris and Dave were soon asked to help assemble a live album in August 1994 called Verse Chorus Verse, but the pair found it too upsetting and difficult hearing his voice, so the plans were scrapped a week after announcing it was coming out. Dave would go on to start his own bands, now well known as the Foo Fighters with Pat Smear joining the band also, and they would travel the world with hit after hit, but that's another story for another time. Chris was set to join the Foo Fighters, but decided it would be looked at as an extension of Nirvana, so he instead started a number of smaller bands himself for a few years, including Sweet 75 and Eyes Adrift, but eventually pulled away from the music scene altogether, as he would instead venture into politics, social activism, DJing, blogging, writing, and occasionally he would collaborate with the Foo Fighters and perform live, but Chris and Dave would never fully recover from losing their good friend. A written will-type note was found in Kurt's journals stating, if he should pass away, that Courtney would be his first choice for custody of Francis, if she should die, godparents Danny Goldberg and Rosemary Carroll should get custody, if they should decline, then Kurt's sister Kimberly should receive custody, and under no circumstances should his father Don Cobain or Courtney's mother have access. Also found around this time was quotes in his journal saying, nothing's going to save me, goes without saying. Courtney would inherit Cobain's estate worth over $100 million, including $115 million in 1994 from songwriting royalties. While Michael Stipe and Drew Barrymore would become Francis's new godparents, after a falling out over claims from Rosemary Carroll that Courtney had something to do with Kurt's death, Francis would live with her mother, aunts, and Kurt's mother, Wendy, on occasions. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. 
Hi everyone, and sorry to interrupt. I hope you're enjoying this episode, but I just wanted to take this opportunity to tell you four ways on how you can support the podcast and play your part in keeping it going, so I can continue to bring you more great episodes. If you enjoy Lyrics of Their Life podcast, first of all it would be greatly appreciated if you could subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. It's totally free to do. It just means that you will receive a notification when a new episode of the podcast becomes available. Secondly, you can leave the podcast a positive five-star review on iTunes as this helps the podcast reach a larger audience. Third of all, you can tell your friends all about the podcast or join us on our social media pages at Facebook, Instagram, TikTok and Twitter. While finally, you can take your support one step further and head to our Patreon page and pledge your support to one of two of our plans for just $1 or $5 per month with no locking contract. Or you can pledge just a one-off payment for all the hard work that goes into creating the podcast. And you will receive a number of extra benefits to go with your donation. Or you can even buy me a beer for $5 at buymeacoffee.com forward slash lyrics of life pod. I am a totally independent podcast creator meaning there are no large networks or businesses financially supporting my work. So your support would be greatly appreciated, as it means I can continue creating more content, such as biographies, the weekly muse, interviews, and more, as it takes a lot of time, resources, and research to prepare and upload just one single episode. Links to Patreon and Buy Me A Coffee can be found in the show notes on our website at lyricsoftheirlife.com or on our Facebook page. Once again, I appreciate every one of my listeners for their support, no matter the form it comes in. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the episode. Just a week after Kurt's death, conspiracy theories began to surface as journalist Richard Lee of Seattle's Public Access TV began criticising the lack of evidence surrounding Kurt's death to say it was a suicide. He ran a series of episodes called Kurt Cobain Was Murdered and believed there were serious inconsistencies such as a lack of blood found at the scene. But experts attempted to debunk these claims, stating a gunshot to the mouth as opposed to the head creates less blood. A popular theory known as the 27 Club would once again return after Kurt's death, with conspiracy theorists suggesting Kurt took his own life to join the high-profile musicians and celebrity figures such as Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison of The Doors, Marilyn Monroe, blues musician Robert Johnson, Rolling Stone Brian Jones, Janis Joplin, and many more who all died at the early age of 27, with their deaths usually relating to homicide, suicide, and alcohol and drug abuse. Kurt's mother was quoted as saying at the time of his death, Now he's gone and joined that stupid club. I told him not to join that stupid club. Many took this as a reference to the 27 Club, but in fact she was referring to the Cobain family's history of death by gunshots. It was reported by Kurt's cousin after his death that Kurt's great-grandfather and two of his uncles had died by suicide by gunshot, but police reports state that two of these were actually accidental. Just two months after Kurt's death, whole bass player Christian Pfaff was found dead of a heroin overdose in the bathtub of her apartment in Seattle on the 16th of June 1994. The death was treated as yet another suicide, but conspiracy theorists and Kristen's own mother believe foul play may have been at hand. Kurt and Kristen 
had become quite close in the months before Kurt's death, as he had helped the bass player during recording of Holes Live Through This Album, and the two began a close friendship, which Courtney became quite jealous of. It is said that Christian was set to quit the band over creative differences with Courtney and feeling homesick and planned to return to her hometown of Minneapolis, Minnesota, as she looked for a way out of Hull. It's alleged Kurt had purchased two to three tickets out of Seattle, with many believing one of these were for Kristen. However, a lack of evidence suggests this was yet another fan theory. After Kurt's death, Kristen was said to have been heartbroken and fell into a bad state of depression. She too received treatment for her heroin addiction through rehab, but soon fell back into addiction, costing her her life. Kristen was also 27, joining the infamous club. On the 1st of November 1994, in order to stop illegal bootlegging, DGC Records released the live album MTV Unplugged in New York, featuring Nirvana's epic performance. The album debuted at number one in the US and rose to number one in 11 countries, including the UK, New Zealand and Australia, and was a smash hit, selling 310,000 copies in just its first week, the most of Nirvana's career over that period of time. By the following year, it had outsold in utero, with 6.8 million copies sold. To this day, it has sold 8 million copies in the US alone, going 8 times platinum, while worldwide, it has sold around 16 million copies. Kurt's death in the Unplugged album saw the rise of the Bleach track, About a Girl Once Again, which rose to number 3 in the US, and 4 in Australia. During 1994, Michael Stipe of REM told Newsweek magazine, that he knew what direction Kurt was going to take next in regards to his career, saying, I know what the next Nirvana recording was going to sound like. It was going to be very quiet and acoustic, with lots of stringed instruments. It was going to be an amazing fucking record, and I'm a little bit angry at him for killing himself. He and I were going to record a trial run of the album, a demo tape. It was all set up. He had a plane ticket, he had a car picking him up, and at the last minute, he called and said, I can't come. In 1995, at the AMAs, Nirvana won favourite heavy metal and hard rock artist, and in the following year, they would take home a Grammy for Best Alternative Performance for their MTV Unplugged album. In a 1995 interview, Courtney spoke to Barbara Walters for the show 10 Most Fascinating People, with Courtney revealing she feels guilt for organising an intervention, believing it led to his death. She also claimed that she made Kurt feel guilty for accidentally dropping Francis on her head on the day she visited when he was in rehab, claiming that it made him feel ashamed and like a bad parent, causing him to flee from the clinic. Many weren't buying Courtney's persona during the interview, however, pointing out that she was able to switch her emotions on and off, and that she was smart and calculating, and some say she was putting on an act. In the aftermath of Kurt's death, Courtney's album with Hole, Live Through This, made it to number 13 in the UK and Australia on their mainstream charts with their four singles becoming reasonable successes around the world. Courtney would tour with Hole from 1994 to 1995, playing her first show just four months after Kurt's death at the Reading Festival. In many of her shows, she would be seen performing erratically, stage diving, getting in fights with crowd members, flashing the crowd, she would burst out into fits of chaotic rages, she would interrupt songs to talk about Kurt's death, go on offensive rants, and at times she was even seen reenacting Kurt's death on stage as part of her act saying it was a coping mechanism. She would soon land in hot water on a number of occasions when she was arrested in Melbourne, Australia for disrupting a Qantas flight as she argued with a flight attendant. 
In another incident, she brawled with bikini kills Kathleen Hanna, claiming she teased her daughter Frances, before Courtney decided to throw a lit cigarette at Kathleen, followed by her fists. Courtney was found guilty and was required to attend anger management. Throughout 94 and 95, Courtney was highly strung out on heroin and rohypnol, claiming not to remember much, and would soon head back into acting and would continue her long-standing travel with drugs and the law. In September of 1995, the Red Hot Chili Peppers' Anthony Kiedis would pay tribute to Kurt by releasing the song Tearjerker from their album One Hot Minute. In this song, Anthony speaks about the effect Kurt had on his life, the first time that they met backstage where Kurt was hilariously sitting in a dress and being in disbelief when hearing the news of his death. Anthony also isn't afraid to express the love and admiration he had for Kurt with the line, Guess you know now, I love you so. I liked your whiskers and I liked the dimple in your chin, your pale blue eyes. It was a beautiful tribute for a dear friend of his that shared some great moments on tour together, most notably back in Brazil. As the years went on, many other tribute songs were written for Cobain, and they would be released with Dave Grohl writing Friend of a Friend, which was later released with the Foo Fighters in 2005, Patti Smith wrote About a Boy, Sure with The Fall, Kurt's Blues, I'm Still Remembering by The Cranberries, The Cult with Sacred Life, Nothing As It Seems by Pearl Jam, Sleeps with Angels by Neil Young, and Kurt's friend Michael Stipe of R.E.M. released Let Me In, just to name a few. In 1996, another live album titled From the Muddy Banks of the Wishkar was released selling over 4 million copies worldwide and reached number one in Canada, the US and Australia. This would be the band's final number one album in the States. The conspiracies and claims wouldn't go away, however, and would lurk for many, many years to come. In 1998, another documentary series aired called Kurt and Courtney. Creator Nick Broomfield investigated the case himself with a crew and travelled around to chat to those linked with Kurt and Courtney. What intrigued most was an interview with heavy metal shock rocker from the band The Mentors named Eldon Hoke and commonly known as El Duce. The crazed rocker happened to claim that Courtney Love offered to pay him $50,000 to murder Kurt Cobain, but declined, even passing a lie detector test on the matter. Around eight days after the interview for the documentary, El Duce was found dead on the train tracks and was beheaded. He was said to have been under the influence of alcohol when his foot got stuck and the train failed to stop, but many still claim that he was knocked off over his comments. Broomfield concluded, that despite not finding enough evidence that Kurt was murdered, he still believes the case needed to be reopened, and that, quote, I think that he committed suicide. I don't think there's a smoking gun, and I think there's only one way you can explain a lot of things around his death. Not that he was murdered, but that there was just a lack of caring for him. I just think that Courtney had moved on, and he was expendable. That same year, during 1998, Courtney's band achieved their most success to date with their album Celebrity Skin. Riding on the media storm surrounding Kurt's death, Hole's new album reached the top five in Australia and Canada, nine in the US, and 11 in the UK. Hole's tracks Celebrity Skin, Malibu, and Awful all became hits with Courtney cashing in on a newfound success with all eyes on her. Later in 2004, she would release her own solo album called America's Sweetheart, and her final album with Hole called Nobody's Daughter would be released a lot later in 2010, with no hits stemming from either of those records this time around. 
On the 31st of May 1999, as a final goodbye ceremony, Kurt's mother Wendy, Francis, Courtney, and Kurt's ex, Tracy Miranda, all attended, as Francis scattered Kurt's remaining ashes into the McLean Creek in Olympia, the place where Kurt spent a lot of his time honing his art and music while with Tracy. Also in 1999, a book by journalist Ian Holperin and Max Wallace was released called Who Killed Kurt Cobain? They also came to a similar conclusion as Nick Broomfield, but claimed Kurt was seeking a divorce and that Courtney was seeking a fierce lawyer to help destroy a prenuptial agreement that she had already signed that prevented her from receiving any of Kurt's money and that their accounts would remain separate if they were to divorce. The book also included interviews with private investigator Tom Grant, who was hired by Courtney to search for Kurt only for Tom to suspect foul play soon after meeting with her, when a number of her stories and things she had said didn't match up or sounded absurd. In 2002, Chris and Dave finally won a battle with Courtney to have Nirvana's greatest hits album released, including the track You Know You're Right, which made it to number one on the US mainstream and alternative charts. The album would go on to fetch 8 million sales worldwide, reaching number one in Australia, two in New Zealand, and three in the UK and US, becoming Nirvana's final number one album in Australia, and anywhere in the world for that matter. More live albums were also released including the Reading Festival of 1992, and compilation albums such as With the Lights Out, featuring rarities and b-sides, but they weren't as successful. In 2003, Frances Bean, aged 11, was placed in the care of her grandmother Wendy after Courtney was arrested for drug possession. Just hours after her arrest, she overdosed on painkillers. Frances was returned to Courtney in 2005 as an ongoing battle for custody was underway over who should be raising Frances. In 2004, Anthony Kaitis of the Red Hot Chili Peppers spoke about Kurt's death in his own autobiography saying, the news sucked the air out of the entire house. I didn't feel like I felt when Hylel, his band's guitar player, died. It was more like the world just suffered a great loss. Kurt's death was unexpected. It was an emotional blow, and we all felt it. I don't know why everyone on earth felt so close to that guy. He was beloved and endearing and inoffensive in some weird way. For all of his screaming and all of his darkness, he was just lovable. Lars Ulrich of Metallica would also state how influential and talented Kurt was in 2004, stating, With Kurt Cobain you felt you were connecting to the real person, not to a perception of who he was. You were not connecting to an image or a manufactured cutout. You felt that between you and him there was nothing. It was heart to heart. There are very few people who have that ability. In 2005, Aberdeen would honour the memory of their fallen rock star, and attract tourists to the struggling logging town by putting up a sign that greets visitors reading, Welcome to Aberdeen, come as you are, and was erected by the Kurt Cobain Memorial Committee, a non-for-profit organisation that honours the legend. In the nearby town of Hoaquim in Grays Harbour, Washington, the 10th of April now marks Nirvana Day, while in Aberdeen, Kurt's birthday the 20th of February is Kurt Cobain Day. The Young Street Bridge, which Kurt used to hang out under, on the Wishka River in Aberdeen, is now a memorial site, with a mural of graffiti art as a tribute for Kurt lies on the pylons beneath the bridge. A large golden guitar with a plaque and an image of Cobain and the lyrics to Something in the Way now sits in the Kurt Cobain Memorial Park in Aberdeen that opened in 2011. 
Kurt would go on to be remembered in plays, books, video games and TV and remains to this day a popular and important figure in music history. In December of 2009, Kurt's mother Wendy and his sister Kimberly were given co-guardianship of Francis Bean Cobain, who was now aged 17, and a restraining order was placed on Courtney. In August 2010, once Francis turned 18, she was awarded 37% of Kurt's estate, including publishing rights to her father's name and image. She stated that she felt guilty for inheriting the estate. Francis says she also wasn't a big fan of grunge music and her father's style of music, but she does love the songs Dumb and Territorial Pissings and enjoys listening instead to Oasis and Nina Simone. In June 2014, Francis married her musician partner, Isaiah Silva, but they later divorced in 2016. She has been known to do modelling, art, acting and TV production for her father's film, Montage of Heck, and she has even dabbled in music herself, no doubt doing her father proud. While intrigued by her father's history, Francis has stated to this day she has never read his journals and doesn't know if she ever will. During May of 2013, Kurt's beloved grandfather Leland sadly passed away at the age of 89 in his home in Montesano. On the 10th of April 2014, Nirvana were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Marking that very same day 20 years ago was the vigil held in Seattle Park in Cobain's memory. There to accept the award that night was Dave Grohl and Chris Novoselic, who were joined on stage by Kurt's mother Wendy, his sister Kimberly, Kurt's half-sister Brianne O'Connor, Michael Stipe, and of course Courtney Love. Loud boos soon rang out when Courtney stepped up to the mic to speak. Here is some of that moment. Good evening. I'm Michael Stipe. I'm here to induct Nirvana into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Kurt Cobain, Chris Novoselic, and Dave Grohl were Nirvana. The potency and the power of their defining moment has become, for us, indelible. Like my band, R.E.M., Nirvana came from a most unlikely place, not a cultural city center like London, San Francisco, Los Angeles, or even New York or Brooklyn, but from Aberdeen, Washington, in the Pacific Northwest, a largely blue-collar town just outside of Seattle. Chris Novoselic said, Nirvana came out of the American hardcore scene of the 1980s. This was a true underground. It was punk rock, but the many bands and musical styles were eclectic. We were a product of a community of youth looking for a connection away from the mainstream. Dave Grohl said, we were dropouts, making minimum wage, listening to vinyl, emulating our heroes, Ian Mackay, Little Richard, getting high, sleeping in vans, never expecting the world to notice. Nirvana tapped into a voice that was yearning to be heard, but they were singular and loud and melodic and deeply original. And that voice, that voice, Kurt, we miss you. I miss you. Nirvana defined a moment, a movement for outsiders, for the fags and the fat girls and the broken toys and the shy nerds and the goth kids from Tennessee and Kentucky, for the rockers and the awkward and the fed up and the too smart kids and the bullied. We were a community, a generation, in Nirvana's case, several generations. And the echo chamber of that collective howl 
and Allen Ginsberg would have been very proud here. That moment and that voice reverberated into music and film, into politics, into worldview, and so many fields in so many ways and in our lives. And this is not just pop music. This is something much greater than that. These are a few artists who rubbed each other the wrong way in exactly the right way at the right time, Nirvana. It is my honor to call to the stage Chris Novoselic and Dave Grohl. I was the quiet one in Nirvana. I was the drummer. But most of you don't know that I was the fifth drummer of Nirvana. For whatever reason, I got to be the luckiest person in the world and also be in Nirvana. But I have to give credit to all of the other drummers that came before me. Aaron Burkhart, thank you very much. Dale Grover from the Melvins, who is my absolute drumming hero. Dan Peters from Mudhoney. Chad Shanning, who is the drummer of Nirvana. Guess what Chad's responsible for? If you listen to a song like In Bloom, that's Chad. We came from this underground punk rock scene where there really were no awards or ceremonies or trophies. It was all about doing it for real, and the reward was doing it right and sharing a community of music, helping other musicians and inspiring people. And so I got really lucky to grow up in the Washington, D.C. punk rock scene where I was inspired by all of these amazing people. Too many to list. I'm also lucky that when we first started out, we didn't know anything about business. We were in a fucking van, you know, buying corn dogs from T-shirts that we had sold. And we were lucky that we met a manager named John Silva, and we met an accountant named Lee Johnson. And I'm happy to say that I've never, ever strayed from those two people in my life. That's like 25 years. John Cutcliffe and Michael Meisel and... I mean, it's a long list of people that I'm gonna forget most of them, but most of all, I have to thank my family because I was lucky enough to grow up in a musical family in an environment that encouraged music. Parents that never told me not to listen to fucking Slayer. You know what I mean? I listened to some really, really fucked up shit. But my parents never told me not to because I was finding myself. So mom, thanks. Thanks for letting me drop out of high school. <laughs> Kids, stay in school, don't do drugs. It's a bad idea. I have to thank my beautiful wife, Jordan and my two daughters that I hope grow up to inspire people just like every musician I grew up inspired by. Because I think that's the deal, is that you look up to your heroes and you shouldn't be intimidated by them, you should be inspired by them. Don't look at the poster on your wall and think, fuck, I could never do that. Look at the poster on the wall and think, fuck, I'm gonna do that. And then you do this.
Thank you, Michael, for that uh, great induction and uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I want to thank all the Nirvana fans who... Nirvana fans walk up to me every day and say thank you for the music. And when I hear, when I hear that, and that reminds me of Kurt Cobain, okay? So I want to say thank you, Kurt Cobain, and I wish Kurt was here tonight, okay? And that music means so much to so many people, and, it's, and there's new generations and new fans coming up, and it's really powerful. And Kurt was, a, was an intense artist, and uh, he really connected with a lot of people. And uh, I want to, and when Nirvana, we did our, we started in Aberdeen, Washington, in Washington State. And uh, we had an infrastructure there to support us. There was a music community. I want to thank Sub Pop Records. Um, the music community in Seattle and Washington State. I want to thank Buzz Osborne. Thank you, Buzz for turning us on to punk rock music. Steve Albini. And Butch Vig for recording us twice. Thank you, Susan Silver, for uh, introducing us to the music industry properly. And uh, thank you all again. I'm probably gonna cry. I'm already crying. Because he'd be so proud. He'd say he wasn't, but he would be. I just miss him so much. He was such an angel. Thank you. You know, I have a big speech, but I'm not going to say it. Hi. We all start bands when we're kids. And this is my family I'm looking at right now, all of you. Brother Michael. Brother Chris, Grandma Wendy, Mr. Grohl, Come on, David and Christmas. That's it. I just wish that Kurt was here to hear, feel this and be this. 20 years ago, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame maybe wasn't, but tonight he really would have appreciated it. He would appreciate it. Chris and Dave and Michael and his mother and his sisters being here. And I just want to give this to Francis our daughter, who's not here because she's ill. That's it, that's all I have to say. Thank you so very much, Jan and the committee. While performances from Joan Jett, Lord, Annie Clark, and Kim Jordan fell flat, Chris, Dave, and Pat Smear were epic in representing Nirvana and their friend Kurt. Despite not being included in the induction, Bleach drummer Chad Channing was present in the audience and was thanked by Grohl for his early contribution to the band. In 2015, the long-running feud between Guns N' Roses came to an end when Dave Grohl lent Axl Rose his guitar-thrown chair that he used when he hurt his leg during a concert after falling off stage. After a similar incident, Dave lent Axl the chair and peace was finally made between the two. After private investigator Tom Grant released a book with Wallace and Holprin in 2004 titled Love and Death, Grant's claims would be further publicised throughout the years and were brought directly to the public eye in 2015 with the docudrama film Soaked in Bleach. 
During this film, Grant along with a range of experts make a strong case for reopening the Kurt Cobain file as they found all sorts of inconsistencies in Courtney's story that were also recorded on tape along with the unconventional methods used during the investigation. Grant made many claims of a cover-up story and that Kurt was knocked off by an individual through Courtney Love's instruction. Professionals in a range of fields were able to debunk most of Grant's claims, but the most obvious points that still raised some questions was Kurt's ability to be able to physically pull the trigger on a heavy shotgun using his thumb with the gun facing upside down after shooting up three times the lethal dosage of heroin, as he would have already been overdosed before being able to find the strength to neatly pack away his heroin kit and shoot a loaded weapon. Further studies carried out in Switzerland, however, did find that it was not impossible, but extremely rare. One concern was raised over the trajectory of the shotgun shell when exiting the weapon, as it appeared to land on the opposite side to what it was supposed to, suggesting it rebounded a fair distance off a seemingly imaginary object. Discovered by Kurt and Courtney's entertainment lawyer Rosemary Carroll in Courtney's backpack that she had left behind in her office on the 6th of April, was a practice or training sheet of paper that matched Kurt's handwriting in the second half of his apparent suicide note, suggesting Courtney had been practicing to forge the suicide note. Grant and Carol claimed that the letter was actually meant for Courtney as his way of telling her he is leaving and they believed Kurt's intentions were to leave the music industry and her altogether. The track You Know Right matches this claim as Kurt sings about leaving and getting away. Grant believes Courtney wrote the second portion of the letter as clear differences in font were evident. Grant and other experts in the film highlighted the failure of the Seattle police to take the matter more serious and investigate further, instead ruling a suicide after just 24 hours. As most high-profile deaths require a thorough investigation so the public don't receive the wrong information and are misinformed, leading to potential hysteria for diehard fans which was the case with Kurt's death. Grant also mentioned that the Seattle Police Department failed to provide photographs of the crime scene, stating it was because it was a suicide, despite not being common protocol. These images would later be released in 2014. Also coming to light was the missing persons report mentioned earlier, that was said to be filed by Kurt's mother, Wendy, when Kurt went missing. To Tom Grant's surprise, it turned out to be Courtney that filed the report under Wendy's name. This led authorities away from the potential crime scene to look in a dead end downtown and to pre-assume Kurt was suicidal due to Wendy, aka Courtney's claims. Grant also shed light on the role of Kurt's friend Dylan Carlson in the case, who potentially led investigator Grant away from the greenhouse as they searched the property on the dark stormy night where Kurt would have been dead for up to a day by then. Upon their second visit, a letter written by nanny Michael Callie Dewitt was found on the steps leading upstairs, addressed to Kurt. It mentioned how Michael knew Kurt had been staying at the house and he condemned Kurt for the way he made Courtney feel over the whole search for him. This led many to suspect that Michael had something to do with his death as he was at the house and was never formally interviewed. It was discovered afterwards that Courtney was paying for Dylan's heroin habit and paying for his rent, with Grant claiming she had Kurt's best friend side with her over his dependency on heroin as she now held the power. Before its release, Courtney attempted to stop the film airing in cinemas, but was unsuccessful as she no longer held the rights to Kurt's estate. Since the release of the film, the calls to reopen the case have grown louder and louder, and with many inconsistencies evident, it couldn't hurt. 
What brought down the case raised in Soaked in Bleach, however, was the mix between voice recordings and acting that at times attempted to sway the audience heavily to one side, that being Courtney killed Kurt, and strongly alluded to Kurt being a happy-go-lucky individual, which simply wasn't the case, like the docudrama attempted to push. What was also evident was the claim that those close to him said he wasn't suicidal and was a happy person, yet the only people interviewed that were supposedly close to him were old friends from Aberdeen that hadn't been in contact with Kurt for many, many years leading up to his death. A popular theory suggested by other theorists was that Kurt was going to take his own life on his own terms, but perhaps was murdered before he could divorce Courtney and leave her out of his estate and will. Kurt's mother Wendy, Dave Grohl and Chris Novoselic all agree that Kurt took his own life, while Buzz Osborne of the Melvins, Kurt's grandfather Leland and masses of fans believe he was murdered. A member of Seattle Police stated that they receive at least one request every week to reopen the case, which continues to this very day. The conspiracy surrounding Kurt Cobain's death has caused quite the divide over the years, but still remains classified as a suicide. Whether or not the case is reopened, there is no doubting Kurt lived with suicidal thoughts and depression since his early teens and as far back as the age of seven, when his parents' marriage started to fall apart. It's important to look at both sides of the story, and while a lot of the evidence doesn't add up, and many parts of the investigation were clearly flawed, it is also strongly evident throughout Kurt's journal entries, voice recordings, lyrics, interviews, on-stage and off-stage antics, and his music, and just what he's been through in life, that he lived a full life of pain and couldn't shake his depressive ways, even suggesting he had undiagnosed bipolar. Kurt was known to his friends and family as a sweet, caring man that was often quite goofy, but at the flick of a switch, he would be depressed, reclusive, and moody all of a sudden, taking him hours or even days to snap out of these ways. Kurt often posed with guns in photo shoots, flirting with the idea, and almost fantasised about death in his journals and his music on numerous occasions. He wrote about the pain in his stomach causing him to have suicidal thoughts. He had tried to take his own life on the train tracks as a teenager in Aberdeen. He had threatened to jump while touring with Tad in Nirvana's early days, and he would overdose a number of times in his later career. While Kurt often joked and insisted that his lyrics were not to be taken seriously, and at times wrote songs right before recording, there is no doubt that his personality, depression, paranoia, and dark thoughts passed through into his songs, and they were in fact quite cryptic and telling of what was to come. Kurt's songs had strong themes and had to have stemmed from somewhere, often being from similar times in his own life. Kurt wasn't one to write songs about happy moments from his life, fun pop songs, or positive love songs, but instead wrote about darker topics that were obviously weighing on his mind and that he felt passionately against, such as rape, murder, depression, his hatred of jocks and macho men, entrapment, and rebellion, which along with his taste in punk rock, garage, thrash, and grunge music, is reflective on the way Kurt felt as a person. He was angry and hateful towards others, as he felt so much different to them, and felt like they could never understand his way of thinking, which was yet again a common theme that he wrote about in his journals. Also coming into play was the way he was influenced over his lifetime, coming from a broken home and having no other feeling of purpose except for music and art. As Kurt stated many times in his journals, music was an outlet for his emotions, pain and anger. As much as those close to Kurt tried to help him, he couldn't help himself. Most likely he decided he was never going to beat it. And on his final stay in rehab, 
he had attended rehab and detox clinics over five times to no avail, which would have been frustrating for Kurt. Undoubtedly, Kurt would have wanted to get clean for Francis, but it was too difficult, which made him feel ashamed and unworthy. Kurt, towards the end, was dependent on heroin to see him through, and it was one of the only things that made him feel better and numb the pain of life as an in-demand rock star. Kurt's sister Kimberly claims Kurt wanted normalcy and a happy family of his own, but also fought hard against it, as he struggled to take praise and accept at times when he should be proud of himself, which is something he obviously developed from his childhood, and something that he portrayed in his suicide note and throughout his journals. The life of a famed rock star just wasn't what Kurt had hoped it would be. While he loved playing music, he hated touring, and he used heroin to mask his issues as a means of escape from the pain he was in both mentally and with his stomach condition. Kurt held on for as long as he could, pulling through a number of near-death and traumatising experiences, but it was all too overwhelming and sudden. The pesky media, losing Francis for some time, Kurt's nagging heroin addiction, plus the external and internal pressures to quit, all contributed to his downfall. But it's likely his conflicting relationship with Courtney Love didn't help his cause in the end, and slowly wore him down to be the broken man he would become towards the end of his life. This all became more and more evident with Kurt's behaviour on and off the stage towards the end, and on Nirvana's final album In Utero, and in particular the song Heart Shaped Box, where Kurt was seemingly foretelling that his time was going to be up soon if things didn't change. With everything compiling in the last six months of his life, it's hard to see what could have stopped Kurt meeting his fate in the end. At the end of the day, only Kurt Cobain really knows what happened on that fateful day, so perhaps we will never know the full story. Instead, we are left with one of the most puzzling mysteries in music history, around 27 years on from his death. In the year 2021, Kurt Cobain would have been 54 by February, if he had have lived to this day. Francis Bean Cobain is now 28 years old, surpassing the number of years her father lived for, but her relationship with her mother is still quite rocky. Courtney is now 56 years old, and is still creating music to this day. Former Nirvana drummer Chad Channing is now 53 years old, Chris Novoselic is now 55, and he occasionally picks up his trusty bass guitar. Dave Grohl is now 52 years old, and has become known as one of the last great rockers fronting the Foo Fighters to worldwide success. Kurt's sister Kim is now 50 years old, his mother Wendy is 72, and his father is 74. Kurt Cobain and his Nirvana bandmates will live on as alternative music legends with a body of work that teenagers of today and now adults turn to during times of struggle. From Kurt's early childhood, it was clear that this artistic, creative and musically minded boy would grow into a talented young man destined for more to life outside of small town Aberdeen. Perhaps Kurt was a special alien orphan sent to the earth for a special purpose as he often fantasised about. Although his parents' divorce, high school drama, homelessness and drugs almost ended those plans early, through the inspiration of his aunt Mary Earl, Uncle Chuck and Melvin's lead singer Buzz Osborne, and meeting good friend and bass player Chris Novoselic, Kurt managed to form a band that would ultimately start a movement of underground garage punk rockers from Seattle and bring them to the mainstream. Through his brilliant songs such as About a Girl, Smells Like Teen Spirit, Come As You Are, Lithium, Something In The Way, In Bloom, and Heart Shaped Box, and the album Nevermind, Kurt Cobain with Nirvana opened the door for bands like Pearl Jam, Alice In Chains and Soundgarden, and changed the face of pop music of the 90s, and arguably rock music forever. 
While grunge would slowly fade away from the mainstream after Kurt's death, Nirvana's great songs are still played repeatedly today on popular radio and TV everywhere around the world. Kurt's ability as a guitarist, while not cookie cutter, was unique and inspired a new generation of techniques. Kurt's ability as a vocalist and a songwriter is greatly underappreciated, and while he was not one to give himself much credit, his songs were brilliant. They were deep, cryptic, at times simple but catchy, and emotionally gripping, as he excelled at telling the story of another, drawing from his own personal feelings, emotions and experiences, and got across his strong messages of equality for females, homosexuals, and standing up against the jocks and the bullies. Kurt with his voice alone was able to draw his audience in, and the pain and frustration that he lived with was strongly felt when he let out his growling and haunting vocals. While grunge has now faded off, Nirvana would inspire a new generation of bands and musicians that would branch into a range of genres, such as pop, alternative, rock and punk, such as Blink-182, Weezer, Green Day, Silverchair, Lana Del Rey, Fall Out Boy, Oasis, Post Malone, Muse, Foster the People, and many more. In total, Nirvana have sold 75 million albums to this day over their short career that spanned only 5-6 to six years, which is an incredibly impressive stat. Despite Kurt hating the icon tag when he was alive, he is now seen as one of the most influential musicians to ever grace the stage. Kurt and Nirvana simply got famous too fast, becoming literally an overnight sensation, from garage punk rock band from small town Aberdeen to front covers of Rolling Stone magazine, a number one album with Nevermind, and headlining festivals around the world. While Kurt struggled to adapt to this sudden fame and admiration from fans all over the world, he would unfortunately live fast and die young. It is important, however, to remember the legacy and amazing music Kurt left here for us, to all enjoy today. No matter how he left this world, Kurt will remain a pioneer in alternative rock and pop music. He'll be remembered as an artist who remained himself despite all the fame and fortune, and he's perhaps the last true rock star of a generation. Thank you all so much for joining me for all four parts of the Kurt Cobain story. And don't forget to check out our other episodes. A new episode featuring a new artist will be revealed on our social media pages during the week, so stay tuned for that one. For more information regarding this episode, including weekly updates and more, head to our Facebook page at Lyrics of Their Life Podcasts or our website at lyricsoftheirlife.com. If you really enjoy the podcast and would like to give back for the hard work that goes into it, it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave a review on iTunes, let your friends know about what they've been missing out on, and click the free subscribe button to the podcast so you can receive new episodes direct to you when they become available. If you would like to support the podcast financially, then feel free to head to Patreon, where you can pledge your support for as little as $1 a month. Every bit of support is greatly appreciated, and it means I can continue bringing you more great episodes in the future. Once again... Thank you all for listening. I'm your host, Adam Hampton, and this is Lyrics of Their Life.